The scripture today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 37. This is found on page 8 in your bulletin. Before I read, will you please join me in a prayer for illumination? God, our helper, by your Holy Spirit, open our minds that as the scriptures are read and as your word is proclaimed, we may be led into your truth and taught your will for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know. There we go. Our brother Jeff Harden has copies of the sermon manuscript. If you'd like to get one, get Jeff's attention as he passes by. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, The sayings we're studying this morning, hard sayings we just heard, all follow the same formula. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus is not only giving his own commentary on the tradition, his own authoritative midrash, to use the Jewish language. He's doing more than that. He's asserting his authority as the lawgiver and reasserting the deeper intention of the law, which has been obscured in the tradition. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. When he does this, 
Jesus is bringing to a full expression things that are already present in the law. Let me mention two things in particular. One is a profound focus on what's on the inside, what's in our souls, our minds, our hearts. The law doesn't just say don't commit adultery and don't steal. It also says don't covet your neighbor's property or your neighbor's partner. As we saw last week, for example, avoiding murder isn't enough. You fulfill the law by rooting out the anger and contempt that lead to murder. At the same time, the law is also profoundly external. It's public, communal, societal, embodied. It's not enough to put aside your anger. But if you really want to fulfill the law, you take things further. You earnestly seek reconciliation. You actively pursue the good of your neighbor and the health of human relationships and the shalom that God intends to be the very fabric of his creation. First be reconciled to your neighbor, then come back and offer your gift to God, and then God will be pleased because your heart will be purified and your actions promote peace. The three sayings we're looking at this morning follow the same choreography. Inward purity expressing itself in outward justice, righteousness, and peace. Shalom. One of these sayings is about adultery, one is about divorce, and the third is about keeping oaths. But there's a closer connection between these sayings than you might initially think. Let's start with the first one. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's clear that Jesus sees adultery as a matter of the heart and not just a matter of the body. You can commit adultery in the privacy of your own mind and all by yourself in a secret place. And I want to make an important point. The kind of adultery that Jesus is talking about is usually not just episodic, a thing that comes and passes. It's habitual. It's formative. And it doesn't just form habits. It forms the heart and shapes the imagination and directs a person's desires, or I should really say misshapes the heart, deforms the imagination, and directs desires in unhealthy and very badly consequential ways. At least on the surface level, the kind of visual lust that Jesus is clearly referring to here, if your eye leads you astray, is probably a bigger issue for males than it is for females. Though there is evidence that more and more females, for example, are using pornography, so I'm going to say a few things about visual lust and the use of pornography, and I'm going to try to be delicate enough that I don't forget that there are probably some younger people in the room. But I can guarantee you that there are people in the room, or almost guarantee you, who either use pornography regularly or who have done so in the past. This is a bigger issue than we probably realize if you believe the social research and the statistics 
The internet has made it so much easier to access pornography, and the variety of subject matter that pornography now offers is kind of shocking. A few years ago, I stayed overnight at a Christian college, and I had access to the public computers to search the internet. And out of curiosity, I looked at the search history, because I noticed some auto-complete things that were, that were happening. And I can't even repeat in this sermon the kinds of things that I found in the browsing history of a public computer on a Christian college campus. And I don't need to go into the graphic detail because I think you know what I'm talking about. But let's ask the question, why? Why does Jesus warn us that the literal and figurative ways in which we use our eyes and our hands might put us in danger of hell? It's because the garbage-in, garbage-out principle that's so familiar to computer programmers isn't just about the data that computers process. It's about what happens in our souls. It's about the moral life we live. It's about how a distorted imagination on the inside, fed and fed and fed with bad things, leads to distorted living on the outside. If you let unholy desires off the leash, to run free in your imagination, that will not only hurt you, it will almost certainly also hurt others. For one thing, if you use porn, you're not only reducing human beings made in God's image to mere images for your pleasure, but you're also aiding, abetting, encouraging, and perpetuating an industry that makes billions and billions of dollars by brutally and coercively exploiting and trafficking in human lives. If the people in the porn films look like they're enjoying what's happening to them, don't believe it. They're exploited. They're being hurt. They're being sometimes coerced away from their families. That's one thing. Not to mention the escalation that happens to habitual porn users as the threshold of excitement moves deeper and deeper into darkness. Parents, you need to think about this. You need to talk to your kids about this. And first, you, and maybe especially fathers, need to make sure that you aren't yourself outwardly faithful, but inwardly an adulterer. That you're not stuck in your own porn habit or your own bad imagination habits before you talk to your children and maybe especially your sons. In other words, we always need to examine ourselves and our hearts. Where is the door to the cellar that you shouldn't open? Do you open that door? Where is your own private stairway to hell? What's the trail of breadcrumbs that you follow into the darkness? What would the browsing history on your own computer reveal? Or in your own mind? That's what we need to look at. And then we need to talk to our kids because they're in danger. We need to help them stay out of this darkness and away from this distorting power. If we don't, where do we think our kids will get their information? And who do we think will be forming their ideas about righteousness? I hope as parents we aren't abdicating our responsibility and leaving that up to peers or to the Madison School District. 
because that's not a source of righteousness. And to people who aren't currently married, who aren't currently raising children, you need to think about these things too. You may not have children, you may not have a spouse, but you need to be attentive to what is happening inside your heart, what might still be happening in the future because of what happens today. Giving lust a free hand in your imagination not only brings real guilt as well as felt guilt, which is not an easy thing to deal with, but it also distorts and undermines your ability to participate in meaningful friendships, and if it ever comes to that, to participate well and faithfully in a marriage covenant. What goes on in your mind and in the chemistry of your brain will leave permanent artifacts in your imagination. There's a browsing history in everyone's soul that cannot easily be erased at the click of a button. What happens in here rattles around and does things for a long, long time. If you let lust shape your imagination, you will have a totally unrealistic idea of what a partner is supposed to be and of what kind of partner you're supposed to be. Anyone who is a potential partner or who becomes an actual real-life spouse will forever be competing against and measured against unreal objects in your imagination, and they will inevitably fall short. They won't meet your expectations, the expectations of a deformed heart and mind that you allow to be deformed by images that never age. And you won't, as it turns out, be very good at meeting the needs of your partner either under those circumstances. So those are serious injustices. Bad imagination habits lead to bad real-life consequences. And let me broaden the scope and point out that Jesus isn't just talking about that sordid form of raw desire that we usually call lust. His, the, the, the Greek word here just means any kind of strong desire. His words apply just as well to spouses who fantasize in other ways about people they aren't married to. So it could certainly take the form of, wow, she's, she's prettier, or she's more passionate than my wife. But it could also take the form of, wow, he's so much farther along in his career than my husband. Wow, he really listens to me and understands what's in my heart. Let's be as egalitarian and as realistic as possible. I'm sure that both women and men engage in desires that focus on physical satisfaction, and I'm sure that both women and men engage in desires that focus on emotional satisfaction. And if those desires are focusing on someone you're not married to, that's a problem. The difference is between the two kinds of desire isn't actually all that important. If your desires lead you away from righteousness and faithfulness, if your desires make you think of your partner or any other person as an instrument of your happiness that can be used or disposed of as necessary, and if in your imagination you are already replacing your husband or your wife with another person, even temporarily, 
in a moment of fantasy, then you're already committing adultery in your heart. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying in this first commentary on the law. And that can lead to worse things. These are big factors in marital dissatisfaction and in divorce. People often leave their spouse because they believe someone else or something else will make them happier. Because that's where their imagination has led them. And that's exactly where Jesus goes next in the Sermon on the Mount, in his next midrash. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Remember, Jesus came to fulfill the law. Keep it in that context, to restore the law to its original intention. And his main intention here is not to condemn adultery, not to underscore the outlawing of divorce, though it's clear that he does think there's only one legitimate reason for divorce. But let's think about this in the historical context. Divorce was a reality back then as it is now. The law permitted divorce. And the certificate of divorce was actually meant to protect women so that they might be free to marry again if their husbands married again. But the law as a whole aims higher. Jesus says, whoever leaves his wife causes her to commit adultery. The root cause of divorce is the problem. And I think the translation is actually a little off. Greek has active infinitives and passive infinitives. And this one is passive. So I think the correct translation is actually whoever leaves his wife makes her the victim of adultery or causes her to be adulterated against. In other words, abandonment is inherently adulterous. The certificate of divorce offered some degree of protection for women when that happened to them, but it didn't solve the larger problem of the evil in people's hearts doing damage in the world and undermining the purposes that God had in mind for marriage in the first place. And I know these are hard sayings. Whoever leaves his wife and marries another makes her the victim of adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman or man commits adultery. And I realize that there are nuances to this that I don't have time to get into. For example, the issues of abandonment and the issue of marriage to unbelievers that the Apostle Paul raises in 1 Corinthians, just to name a couple nuances. So I do understand that, and I would be willing to talk more about this a different time. But right now, I want to follow the train of thought that Jesus is on here in Matthew 5 and the way he is connecting the dots. The person who commits adultery in their heart and who then commits adultery in other ways by divorcing their spouse and then getting married again to a person who is not their spouse, who is someone else's spouse in the eyes of God, is making a real mess. Not just spiritually, but socially. Jesus says if your eye leads you astray, it might lead you very far astray. So that not only will your own soul be in danger in the next world, but the actions that flow from your heart will do damage to others in this world right now. That's the gist of it. The third saying is more relevant to this than it might seem. Again, 
You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, you shall not swear falsely, but carry out the vows you have made to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. And Jesus goes through several oath-taking options that I'm not going to go through in detail. He ends up, do not swear at all. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no, or in some translations, let your yes really be yes, and let your no really be no, because anything else beyond that comes from the evil one. Taking an oath and taking a vow are quite similar. Breaking a vow, a marriage vow, is another word for adultery. And breaking an oath is another word for lying or cheating or defrauding someone. And it's a means of theft. It's a means of taking something that's theirs by right. The common denominator here is not only the theme of keeping promises, but a human tendency and willingness to break promises and annul covenants for reasons that are selfish and dishonest. What is the law trying to protect people against? And what evil is Jesus trying to root out of our hearts and out of creation itself? It's our human tendency to exploit other people and to use them instrumentally as tools for our satisfaction and advancement and to find loopholes that allow us to neglect and ignore our obligations to them and deprive them of what we owe them and what is rightfully theirs and even justify it because we found the loophole. If you think about it, taking an oath that you have no intention of keeping not only uses other people instrumentally, but it even uses God instrumentally in your exploitation of other people. If we promise to do something, so help me God, that makes God, without God's content, consent, the guarantor of our reliability and our faithfulness. Or really, it makes God complicit in our unreliability and unfaithless, in our faithlessness. And I don't, think Joseph, I don't think Jesus is totally forbidding us from taking any oath if, for example, the government requires it in a court setting. But if you take that oath, you better mean it. Your yes had better be yes. Let's bring this to right now. Last week, in front of every eye in the watching world, one Republican senator let his yes be yes and his no, no. He held his oath and his conscience of higher value than any personal consideration. I don't know what Jesus thinks of Mormon theology. I have some issues with it. But I think the Lord of truth was honored by Mitt Romney's allegiance to the truth. Whether he was right or wrong about the facts, he acted publicly on his beliefs. He kept his oath, and held that sacred. I wonder how many Christian Republican senators, mainline or evangelical or Catholic or whatever, sold out their consciences for the sake of re-election or out of fear of negative consequences from the current administration. Joining the ranks, I do feel obliged to add this. 
joining the ranks of many Christian democratic senators who long ago sold out their consciences over the issue of abortion for the same kind of self-interest and the same fear about electability. Jesus once described Satan in this way. He was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Life and truth are under assault in our times. A spirit of confusion has taken us in its grip and a culture of death is emerging before our very eyes. Jesus is light and life and truth. He's not only telling us the truth, but showing us that truth is necessary for human flourishing. The law is a blueprint for human flourishing. There is no shalom without respect for life, without respect for marriage, without respect for other people's property, and without respect for truth. All of these are necessary for personal and social well-being. And we live in very dark times. Jesus calls us to be salt and light in a dark world, to be witnesses to the truth and to embody justice and righteousness and peace. Where is the church in our times? Where are the Christians now? Where am I? We need to be asking ourselves those questions and praying and acting accordingly. Well, I feel like I need to say one more thing this morning. We all heard the call. Jesus calls us to purity of heart, purity of motive, purity of action. But not a single one of us has lived up to that perfectly. We already confessed our sins, but there's a reason we confess our sins every week in every worship service. I am intensely aware of how, how far short I fall of what the law tells me to embody. So let me steer us in the, sec- in, the, in, the, in the direction of grace, not to let us off the hook, but to remind us that we need to stand in the grace of God as well as the righteousness of God. Just as Jesus calls us not only away from murderous anger and contempt into the grace of reconciliation in the saying that Jim led us through last week, in the same way, he calls us out of the prison of misdirected desire and the wasteland of strained vows and the desert of broken promises into the freedom of forgiveness, into the garden of grace, into an oasis of reconciliation with God and with one another. The same language we heard this morning comes up again later in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 18, if your eye leads you astray, tear it out. If your hand or your foot leads you astray, cut it off. Not just because of what it's doing to you, but because of what it's doing to others. That's clearly in the picture in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is about the church. In Matthew 18, Jesus envisions the church as a community of forgiveness and healing and reconciliation and restoration. He spells out a process of privately 
and graciously correcting one another, involving the rest of the church if necessary, but doing that not for the sake of winning an argument, but for the sake of winning back to God and back to the community of grace, a lost sister or a lost brother. It's not a story of forgiveness grudgingly given, allowing the guilty one last chance. It's a story that calls us to remember how we have all had far more chances than we deserve because God is so extraordinarily loving and patient towards His children that our God is a God who delights to show mercy. The law is not best fulfilled by punishing the guilty, shaming the offender, and driving out the sinner. The law is best fulfilled by mercy. The Pharisees in this same gospel ask Jesus why he was willing to spend time with sinners and tax collectors. And this was his answer. Go and learn what this means. God speaking. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I have come to call not the righteous but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Jesus, you call us not as righteous, but you call us as sinners. But you do call us to righteousness. Not just an imaginary or supposed righteousness, though we do gladly receive the covering of your own righteousness before the Father. But you call us also to embodied righteousness. You call us to practice mercy, to be pure in heart, and to be people who create shalom by our lives. We need two things for that. We need your mercy to cover our own sins. And we need your grace to overcome them. And to embody the righteousness that you make available to us. Help us, we pray, with your mercy and with your grace. And make us all people who are pleasing in your sight. And who do your Father's will. Jesus, we pray that you will take these things to the Father for us in your name and in your righteousness. Amen.